morning once again, and good to be with you. If, uh, if you're visiting, really glad you're here. If you have your Bible, we are in Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount that, that Jesus himself is teaching. And so um, people who are not very familiar with the Bible, uh, some of them, they like to say sometimes that they, they like Jesus' moral teaching and there's value in that, uh, but that doesn't mean that you need to worship him or put your faith in him or anything like that. Um, you can just kind of use his teachings to be a good person, and that's where the value is in what Jesus teaches. And the thinking generally is that as long as you're a pretty good person, like, you should be fine, you know? Lots of people think that, and that's what they're trying to do. They're just trying to be the best person that they could be. Um, You try not to do anything that's, like, too awful, like murder or adultery, or other things, you know, I don't think I have to, like, give examples, you know what bad things are, and, and you try to do good things, you try to be, you try to be nice, and kind, and patient, and you try to, uh, help people, and, and care about other people, uh, and, and not just caring about yourself, and that's great, but if that's what your game plan for life is, right, if that's how you're gonna live your whole life, I'm just gonna try and be a good person, you're gonna get to the end, and at the end you say, Whatever happens, happens. I was a good person. If you tried to explain that game plan to Jesus, Jesus would tell you that's a bad plan. Right? Don't get mad at me. Jesus is the one who thinks it. I agree with him, uh, but it's because it's Jesus who says it. Um, Jesus is not concerned at all about trying to make you live like a good person. That's not what he's hoping for. In his whole ministry, he's not trying to make people be the best they could possibly be. Um, And he makes it clear that if that is your goal, it's a bad goal. The biggest reason for that is that you're just not a good person. According to Jesus, you're you're not as nearly as good as you need to be. And here's where there's a big disconnect for people, because you kind of bucket that. Um, But you're not a good person according to God's standard. And that's the standard that Jesus is using. Now, people use their own standards all the time. Like, we just kind of make up, like, what feels right to us. Like, I think this is good, and I think this is wrong. And we kind of mishmash our own ideas about what it means to be a good person. And maybe according to that standard, you could be pretty good. Maybe not, because everyone still, you know, compromises their own convictions anyways at some point. Um, But here's the thing. If there really is a God, if there really is a God of the universe who created everything, and he created you, and he holds eternity in his hands, and he's going to judge the heavens and the earth, his standard is the one that matters, not yours. And his standard is one that you could never live up to, like, no matter how much you try, how self-disciplined you are, how careful you are, you can never live up to it, and the reason why is because in your heart, you don't really want to. You don't want to live the way that God tells you is good for you to live. There's always going to be something that God tells you this is good, and your heart's going to say, no, it's not, and you're going to disagree with God, and you're going to reject his authority, and that's just the sin that's in all of us. 
Like the, the reason we can't be good is because we don't want to be the good that God defines. That's why we'll never live up to the standard. And that is like pretty not great news. Um, the good news, and this is what Jesus wants to teach us in the scripture we look at today, just, just a few verses, that you can only embrace the good news that Jesus has for you after you've been brought to a point where you agree with him and, and you can say, I'm not a good person. I'm not good enough. I don't measure up. I can't do it on my own. I need help. I need a savior. That's where Jesus is trying to bring us through the, the scripture that we're looking at today so that we can embrace that good news, and in embracing that good news, we can be filled with great joy, all right? And so it's kind of a, a little bit of a roller coaster, but let's read the verses we'll be in today. We're going to read all of them, and we'll start um, moving through it. We'll read them again at the end, but verse 17, Jesus says this. It says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Baby knows what's, what's going on, right? He's agreeing with me. Uh, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's all we're looking at today, but there's so much in here. Um, first thing I want you to notice, though, is the way that Jesus talks about himself. Um, because it's so, like, different from anyone else. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I have not come to abolish it, but to fulfill it. Um, that is, like, a crazy thing to say for just about anyone other than Jesus, because the law, this is God's word. This is the standard that he's given to his people that we, we are to measure ourselves by and to, and to try and live up to. This is God, it represents God's will, and Jesus is speaking as if he has some sort of authority to affect God's will, there's another like misconception people um, who are not super familiar with the Bible like to say that, Je first of all, that Jesus never claimed to be God, which he does, not right here, but he does. Uh, but even if, even if you don't see it where he's claiming to be God, he's constantly saying that he has the ability to do things that God alone is able to do. It's like he's always putting himself, because Jesus is God. He's God born as a human being to be our savior. That's, that's who he is. And he wants us to know that. He makes it so clear throughout all of his teachings. Anyways, uh, a few things I want to say in the sort of background about mostly the law, right? The law and the prophets so that we can understand what Jesus is saying here. Um, in, in the prophets, this is, they're, they're repeating a lot of the law, applying it to God's people, but they're also making prophecies about the Messiah, the Christ, who would eventually come and fulfill the law. And so that's, that's where he's talking about the prophets here. But the law, also known as the law of Moses, these are the commands that God gives to his people through Moses about how they should live. And it starts with the Ten Commandments, the most famous sort of commands that he gives. 
but after that, he continues to give more and more to say, you know, in all these kind of various situations that you might find yourself in throughout life, here's what you do when this happens, when this happens. A lot of the laws are, here's what happens when people break the law. Like here are the, the punishments or the way to correct that. Um, and at the time of Jesus, and, and it's been kind of reconfirmed by modern scholars today of the Old Testament, that um, they had identified 613 distinct commands in the law that the people of God have an obligation to observe. And so for the people of Jesus' day, if they're going to, you know, ask themselves, how do I be a good person? Their answer would be, there's 613 things that I need to be right about. Um, Now, throughout the history of Israel, they'd been pretty loose with them. Like, from the time of Moses, even while he's giving the law, people are pretty loose about obeying it. They disregard God's law constantly. Um, There's a few times they'd be serious about it, but all along, God keeps sending them prophets and keep warning them, like, hey, if you don't don't take my law seriously, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be invaded, you're going to be carried into exile, and then after a period of time in exile, you're going to come back. And that's exactly what happens. After warnings, centuries of warnings, that's what happens. And it's when the people come back that you start to notice a shift in them where they start to become very serious about God's law because now they know, here's what happens when we're not. And that was really bad. And so they, it, it's like a pendulum swing so that the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people that we see in the New Testament, are so hyper-focused on observing the law to the point of being super legalistic about it that is very not present in the rest of, in like the whole Old Testament almost. And so if you ever notice that change, that's why that happened. Um, and I apologize, I'm going to say the word law like 400 times today, but like it just is going to keep coming up. Um, I'd like to give you some context for understanding the law that I think will be helpful because, you know, if you just kind of look in the Old Testament and you start reading it, it, it could come off as a little bit confusing or complex, and it doesn't have to be. And, and I hope to maybe clear up some misconceptions for you as well. But the, uh, the context I want to give you is this. I want to give you uh, the quality of the law, three components of the law, three purposes of the law, and a filter to understand the law. And if you're a note taker and you missed that, don't worry, because we'll actually get it up on the screen today. But, uh, but after going through that whole context, we're going to see how is it that Jesus fulfills the law as he claims to, and, and what does that mean for us? And so first, the quality of the law. The law is good because it is God's word. Uh, here's, here's another misconception. We're covering a lot today. Uh, a misconception people have about the Bible is that the Old Testament is like God's failed first attempt uh, where he like made mistakes and he didn't really get it and he was a little bit more impatient, a little bit more angry. And then in the New Testament, Jesus fixes it. He fixes all the mistakes and God is like chill now and more loving and forgiving and kind and good. Um, That's a really bad way (laughs) to, to read the Bible. And it's not at all the way the Bible presents itself. Um, You see it in Jesus' response here, right? That I'm not here to abolish it. He's not getting rid of the law. And he's not changing it. He's not issuing a new standard to us that's better, that fixes the mistakes in the old one. Uh, He says not not even a small part of the law is going to be thrown away. None of it is irrelevant. None of it is worthless. 
but he's not fixing it because it doesn't have to be fixed. You see in, in Psalm 19 how the Bible values the law, that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The law is perfect. It's good for your soul. It makes you wise. It rejoices your heart. Jesus did not come to destroy it, and he didn't come to fix it. He came to fulfill it, but, but the essential quality of the law is good. It's a good thing because it's God's will. Second, the three components of the law. It's going to the makeup of the law. There are requirements, rewards, and a reckoning. See that? I got three R's for you there, so it'd be easy to remember. It was hard to come up with reckoning. Um, I want to say consequences, but uh, in general, we mostly think, in the law, we think of the requirement. The requirement is, you know, thus says the Lord, this is what you're supposed to do. So um, observe the Sabbath, honor your mother and father, things that you actively are supposed to do, or this is what you must not do, right? Don't murder, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't covet. Um, but in any case, it, it, it's a command, it's a requirement for you to actually implement in your life. Um, there's more to it. There's more to it in the law. There's, there's also the promised rewards for those who keep the law, and there's the promised reckoning for those who do not. And one of the clearest places we see this is in Deuteronomy chapter 28. It's a long chapter. I'm just going to read parts of it. But the chapter starts out like this. This is God speaking. And if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all that in his, or Moses speaking, all that is in his commandments that I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you if you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Verse 9, the Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord, and they shall be afraid of you. There is, there, there's a lot of verses here, actually, that talks about the blessings that the people are going to receive if they're living out God's word, if they're careful to obey his commandments, if that's the thing that they, they're really striving for in their lives, there's reward for that. There's reward for living righteously. And then in verse 15, God says this, uh, or most... But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. The, uh, verse 20, the Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. There's a pretty extensive list following these verses as well, that here's all the things that if you break God's commands, if you uh, step outside of his will, here are the consequences for that. Here's the reckoning. And it's not because, like, God's ego can't handle it if you don't listen to him, and so he just, like, gets impatient and blows up on people. That's not what's happening here. We actually see the opposite with God. We see that he is extremely patient and gives so many chances, and is very ready to forgive people who don't listen to him time and time and time and time again. 
But look at verse 20 here. When people break God's commands, how is he describing it? It's like these consequences will come upon you because of your evil deeds. To break God's commands and step outside of his will is to commit evil. And that's another thing that like we, we don't like to hear it or we find it disagreeable. We, we, maybe you don't really believe that. Um, because every new generation thinks they're the enlightened ones. Like every group of people thinks like they've got it figured out. We've figured out good and evil and I'm, I kind of know what it is. And, and I can see looking backwards so clearly here's how everyone else got it wrong. Uh, thing is, what we, what, what modern American people generally would consider and label as evil, that's going to be different from what, uh, in some ways, from what, you know, modern Chinese people or Russian or Iranian or other parts of the world, what they're going to consider and label as evil. There's going to be disagreements in different parts of the world. And there's for sure going to be disagreements if you look to like even a single generation back and it gets wider the further you go, where, you, you know, American people from 200 years ago, 100 years ago, the things that they would consider evil, they would consider good, are, are you know, completely different from what our current modern values are. Uh, human standards are always changing. In the early part of the 20th century, there was a huge movement around eugenics, and eugenics was considered morally good. If you don't know what eugenics is, basically you don't allow people who have undesirable qualities to have children so that you can eliminate all those undesirable qualities. Sound like a good idea? No. You know, there's one guy who's very influenced by that and, and ended up putting it into practice in history. Um, his name was Hitler, and I think most of us would say he was not that good of a person. But this was something that had wide adoption, wide support, that this is the morally good thing to do. Right? Standards are always changing. God's law is good, and it never changes. It's always going to challenge the culture in some way. It's always going to challenge individuals in some way but he's given us a standard that fits for all times and all places. Let's look now at the three purposes of the law. Three purposes of the law. The first is to, uh, to reveal God's character. Because the law is God's word, when we look into the law, we can see a lot about who God is, and we can see the, in, in the laws that he gives, like, wow, God is such a loving person. You know, he cares about the poor, he cares about the marginalized he has compassion on them. He wants them to be cared for. Uh, he, he wants to protect us. He's concerned about justice and fairness. He hates deceit. He hates bribes. He hates stealing, theft. He, he wants to protect us from those things. Like, God is a good God. Second purpose of the law is to enable human flourishing by restraining human evil. And so 1 Timothy chapter 1 says this, it says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, 
perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Uh, one of the reasons God gives the law is so that certain behaviors would be restrained. And another important thing to remember about the law is it's given in uh, it's given to the people of Israel as a nation who existed in a culture and a time thousands of years ago. And so it covers in the law parts of life that were normal for them that are foreign to us. And that's where some disconnect comes from sometimes when you read the law. But it restrains behaviors that would be bad for, for any society, for any community of people that are trying to live together. Uh, now, just because something is illegal doesn't mean that people are not going to do it, uh, but people are going to do it anyways is a really bad reason to not put a law in, in place in the, you know, in the first place. Uh, because the law allows you to put penalties in that if a person does this, here's the consequence that they'll experience. And just the existence of those penalties prevent people from doing whatever they were going to do, right? They don't want to go to prison. They don't want to, you know, if there's a death penalty, the cost is too high to engage in the behavior, and so they're not going to do it. Some people do it anyways, but because the punishment is spelled out in the law, you can punish them in a way that will hopefully prevent them from being able to do that thing again. And it allows human society to flourish, like, I, I don't know about you. I don't want to live in a place where murder is not explicitly spelled out as illegal or, you know, stealing or perjury. We all have more freedom and peace because of those laws. And that's what God's law does for us. And just like a wild concept about God's law, but in Romans 2, the Apostle Paul tells us that the law is actually written on our hearts. He says this, uh, they, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. And so he's, he's moving into a concept here, but he's saying that, you know, God has given all of us a natural understanding of his law, like the, a natural ability to tell just from our own conscience what God approves of and what he disapproves of. And, and we can ignore that we can suppress it, and we can grow numb to it, but it's something that he's given to each of us. And so the law, it reveals God's character, it enables human flourishing by restraining human evil, and then the third purpose of the law uh, we'll actually get to in, uh, in just a little bit. And so we'll, we'll come back to the third purpose. The next to look at is the filter that we need for understanding the law. Um, or for interpreting the law. Because, again, if you just, like, crack open the Old Testament, like, if you end up in Leviticus and you start reading some of the commands there, uh, some of them you're going to read and you're going to go, I don't know what this means. I don't know why this was written, why it was necessary, or what exactly it's supposed to be doing. Um, and Leviticus might be a little trickier because it's governing uh, priestly worship, but Jesus gives us a simple key that helps us to unlock the meaning behind every single command that God gives, all 613. And it's a filter that we can use to run each one through, and we can come to some understanding of it. And he gives this filter when uh, he's asked about what the greatest commandment is. And so without hesitation, without pause, we see this um, 
teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? The 613, what's the most important? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. On those two commands, all the others depend meaning. The 611 other commands are all expressions of this is what it looks like to love God with your heart, soul, and mind. This is what it looks like to love your neighbor as yourself in various ways, in various situations. That's the meaning and the purpose of the law. And you see how that would extend to even things that are not written about, you know? So like uh, things that are not explicitly covered in the law, like, you know, the God, the Bible doesn't say anything about crystal meth. Yeah, but it says stuff about drunkenness and don't be filled with drunkenness, but be sober-minded. And so you see how like, it's not just the letter of the law, it's the spirit and the intent of the law is the thing that really matters. Uh, for, for some of the commands that we see, it's very clear to understand how like, okay, I get how this is to love God and to love my neighbor. So 10 commandments, don't lie or steal or murder or envy. Like, I understand that that is a loving thing to do for my neighbor and, and to love my neighbor as myself because I don't want my neighbor to do those things to me. Um, those are also ways that you love God because God made your neighbor and God loves your neighbor. Uh, and then other commands we see about worshiping God, have no other gods before me, don't take the Lord's name in vain, Side note on that one, uh, that's not saying like, oh my goodness, say his name instead. You know what I'm talking about. Um, it means don't claim to be a follower of God. Don't take his name for yourself. I'm a Christian. And then live your life in a way that makes it clear you know nothing about him or you care nothing about him. It's, it's a law about not dishonoring the name of God through your own hypocrisy. But again, this is how do I love God with all my heart and my soul and my mind? Some of those are pretty clear. And then you find other ones that you just are like, what is going on? So Exodus 23, verse 19. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. It's a little bizarre. It sounds more like an intrusive thought than something people were actually doing. <laughs> you know, like, uh, like hmm, what would that taste like? Uh, I don't think it was that widespread, but the, the best answer that the biblical scholars tell us is that there were ancient pagan worship practices to false gods, and this was probably a part of that. And so it makes sense, like, hey, this thing that the neighboring nations around you are doing to worship their false gods, you don't do that. And then you see, okay, well, this is a way for me to love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. It kind of starts to fit into place when you're filtering it through love God and love your neighbor. That's the same thing with the one about uh, don't tattoo your body or make markings for the dead. Uh, that was also a part of pagan worship, and so that's the thing that's being pro prohibited in the spirit of the law. Um, Sometimes it takes a little bit of knowledge. Like, if you don't have a good study Bible, uh, 
a good study Bible can help give you some of the context, some of the knowledge for helping those things to fit into place. Um, but again, running it through that filter. Um, it, it's all different expressions of loving God and loving your neighbor. Uh, and it covers the whole experience Israel had where they're, co- they're surrounded by those uh, nations that have these pagan worship practices. And we see it. They're, they're really tempted by them. They're tempted to adopt those practices into the way they worship God. And God says, no, that's an abomination. I don't want you to worship me that way. Uh, or they start worshiping the false gods themselves. And so God's putting into the law, don't worship false gods. And that's what we see in some of them. Uh, and, and some of the ones about you know uh, dietary restriction or ritual cleanliness, um, festival laws, a lot of them are, here's how you be distinct as my people in a world that worships false gods. Now, let's look again at what Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. So verse 17 again, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, according to Jesus, you can't measure up to God's standard. You can't be as good as you need to be. And that's verse 20 here. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who are most focused on these 613 commands, they're so focused on them that they write this thing called the the Mishra. So there's the Torah, that's the law that God gives, and then the Mishra is like extra rules they made to set guardrails so that no one could even come close to breaking God's law. And so some of the best examples about the Sabbath, they have this whole list of rules of things you can't do on the Sabbath that they're going to say this qualifies as work, limiting the number of steps you can take, uh, like if your roof caves in, like you can't fix it on the Sabbath, um, you can't spit in the dirt and make mud, they just make all these rules so that no one could possibly break the Sabbath. Um, One of the modern ones that people uh, are familiar with, uh, kosher, you can't have the meat and the cheese touching. Do you guys know that? And that's because of the law that we read about boiling the, the young goat in the mother's milk. Even though like it's not doing that, they're just like, we're just gonna keep them separate so it could never possibly happen anyways. So they come up with all these extra rules and like ironically, sometimes violate the purpose of the law in trying to carry it out. Like, they make keeping Sabbath so exhausting, no one could possibly actually be rested on the Sabbath. Uh, But Jesus says, unless you're even more focused and and, and, um, and able to keep the law than the Pharisees and the scribes who are hyper-focused on these 613 commands, you'll never enter into the kingdom of heaven that way. And everyone hearing that at the Sermon on the Mount, they're all hearing Jesus say, okay, it can't be done. You can't be done. Except for one person. And that's what Jesus says. 
I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill it. And the third purpose of the law, when I said we get to, that's to prepare us for Jesus. That's to prepare us for Jesus, to make us aware of our inability to keep the law, that we can never live up to it, that we're in need of a Savior, we're in need of someone to come in and fulfill it for us. And even that's written into the law because there's all kinds of commands about, you know, here's, here's what happens when you break God's law, when you sin, here are the offerings you have to give so that you can be forgiven and maintain a good relationship with God through their, their sacrificial system. And uh, it, it, even all that is, is all pointing to Jesus. It's preparing us for Jesus. The three components of the law, the requirements, the rewards, and the, the reckoning, Jesus lives a perfect, sinless life. He, he perfectly fulfills the requirements of the law, and not just the letter of the law, but the purpose of it. He loves God with all his heart, soul, and mind. He loves his neighbor as himself, and he never violates or breaks any one of God's commands in doing it. He lives a perfect life, and because he's lived this perfect, righteous life, he's earned the reward. At the same time, we have lived sinful lives. We fail to love God. We fail to love our neighbors as ourselves. We choose to disobey God and, and violate the law that he's written onto our hearts. Even when our conscience is telling us that we're wrong, and we, because of our sin, we deserve the reckoning. We deserve the punishment for breaking God's law. And what Jesus does in the gospel and the good news is that he switches place with us. So we get to stand in his place and he stands in ours. Our, our, um, our sin, our failure is put on Jesus and his perfect obedience, his perfect record is given to us. As so on the cross, Jesus is receiving the reckoning that we deserve. God's wrath is poured out on him for sin, judgment for sin. And he suffers under that punishment on the cross to the point of death. And he gives to us as a gift the reward for righteousness. We're, we're forgiven, we're made clean, we're made new, we're given the hope of eternal life. The law is about the, the sacrifice for sins. Jesus becomes the perfect sacrifice for your sins. He he fulfills the law for you. He fulfills the requirements. He gives you the reward. He takes your reckoning. But if, you're, if you've never put your faith in Jesus and surrendered yourself to him, he hasn't fulfilled the law for you, and you're going to have to fulfill it for yourself. You're going to have to try to be better than the Pharisees. You're going to have to be as good as Jesus was himself in, in perfectly keeping the law. Again, not just the letter of it, but the spirit within it. Loving God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Loving your neighbor as yourself. Do you think you can do it? Do you think you can measure up? You don't have to. That's the good news. You don't have to. You can have freedom today. You can have peace today. Like all the burden that you're putting on yourself, all the pressure that you feel to kind of, you know, to measure up, to be a good enough person, to prove yourself, 
all that kind of weight that you're carrying around and the, the nagging suspicion that you're not doing good enough and so you need to try harder, all of that, you don't have to prove anything. Jesus does it for you. Jesus proves that you matter. He gave his life for you. You don't, you don't have to be good enough. Jesus' goodness is enough for you. It's so good to be freed from that pressure, to have that weight lifted off of you. It's like having, like if you're in school, and you have your end of your final in a class that you've been struggling with, and you've been struggling all year long, and you're not doing that great, and you need to get a hundred on this final to pass the test, and and you're doing everything you can. You're you're studying, you're doing mock tests, you're you're putting in sleepless nights, but but all the results you're getting are still saying that you're not going to be able to get a hundred on this test. And then you you walk in on the day of the test, and before you even sit down, your teacher hands you a graded test filled out with a score of 100. Someone's done it for you. And I guess in this fictional clown show school that I just invented, that's okay. You know, like it's not cheating, but that is totally fine. Um, I don't know, I was just trying to find an example that communicates the work that you need to be done and you need it to be done perfectly, that is done for you by Jesus. And it's gifted to you. Maybe like debt is a better example. It's like you go to pay your mortgage and the bank's like, it's been paid, you know? Or your student loans, it's been paid off. Your car, the debt's gone. Someone else paid it. And immediately you're set free. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to fight. You don't have to scrounge. You don't have to do anything else to pay that debt off. It's already been done. There's so much joy and so much peace and so much freedom in having Jesus fulfill the law for you. And that allows you to better carry out the law because now instead of doing it from a place of fear or a place of self-righteousness where you're always thinking about yourself, you're actually freed up to think about God and freed up to think about your neighbor. And so you can actually just love them. Jesus fulfilling the law. So that doesn't mean that... um, that you're now free to go and like sin as much as you want because he's fulfilled the law and the, the reckoning has been taken care of and so I can just kind of do whatever I want. If you're in a place where you think that, um, that's good evidence that your heart hasn't been changed by his fulfilling the law for you. And so maybe it didn't happen. Maybe you think you've put your faith in Jesus, but you don't really know what it means to put your faith in Jesus. It does change things, though. Like, Jesus fulfilling the law, that does have major implications for our lives and what it means for us to live now. Um, specifically, things that we see in the law that, God, that Moses gives um, about, you know, food restrictions, ritual cleanliness, sacrifice, festivals, things like that. Uh, Jesus fulfilled them so that uh, their, their, their purpose is fulfilled because they're always meant to point to Jesus, you know? Like, Jesus himself declares all foods clean. Um, he, he makes us clean. We don't have to care about ritual cleanliness anymore because he's the, the one that cleanses us. 
don't have to care about sacrifices anymore because he's the perfect sacrifice one time for all time. Other laws we see in the Old Testament that, uh, like, like the Ten Commandments that are more direct, many of them are repeated in the New Testament and given as commands that like, hey, you actually still have to do, live like this. Um, the law is still in effect. It doesn't pass away. But again, Jesus has fulfilled the requirement, the reward, and the reckoning. So, so we're not going to be punished by our inability to live up to the law. We might be disciplined and God might correct us so that we can learn and grow and, and become more and more like Jesus. But we're not, we're not punished for it and the reward comes from Jesus himself. Just two thoughts to leave us with as, uh, as we close for today. One, are you trying to be a good person? And are you stuck in, in the place where you feel like you have to? Like, I just, I just need to try and be as good a person as I can be, and that's, that's the only thing that's going to make things okay. That's what's going to clear up things between me and God. Um, how do you know that you're good enough? And if you're using like your own standard and understanding of what it means to be a good person, how do you measure up to God's standard? And Jesus himself says that we can't, that you can't be good enough. And that's all going to turn out to be vain effort. But Jesus offers to fulfill the law for you. Do you know what it's like to have that, that pressure lifted, that weight taken off you? So you don't have to prove yourself. The, the debt is paid, it's gone. The work is done for you. You can have that freedom today. You, you can make a decision today to put your faith in Jesus, surrender yourself to him, let go of all your effort and trust what he's done for you. Second thought to leave you with. If you've done that, if you think you've done that, are you using the freedom God has given you to live out the spirit of his law or are you using it to give yourself permission to get away with little things? Are you using that freedom to love God and to love your neighbor? Again, not from a sense of fear or, or, or self-righteousness, but because you're so moved by what Jesus has done for you? Are you living in a way that honors Jesus? Or are you kind of taking things and saying, well, this isn't a big deal. This is just a small thing. Jesus will forgive me anyways. I don't have to worry about this. I don't have to worry about that. Using it to give yourself permission to do the things that Jesus had to die on a cross to forgive you for. I'm not saying that like anyone's going to be sinless or anyone's going to be perfect. But there's a big difference between hating your sin, fighting against it, wanting it gone, and keeping it hidden, protecting it, not wanting to let it go.
if Jesus has fulfilled the law for you, has that, has that been changing? Has it been changing your heart? Has it been making changes in your life? Let me pray for us.